welcome to another episode of Three Wise DMs, the podcast for three dungeon masters who've been doing this for way too long. Talk about all the things we do to try to make our games as good as they can be. I'm Thorin, and I'm joined by Tony. But it was just my imagination running away with me. Oh, it was just my imagination running away with me. <laughs> Temptations, right? Yes. Woo. And then a couple other people did uh, versions of it. But the Temps version is the one that everyone knows. I was like, I'm sure that's the Temptations, but if I get this wrong, it's going to seem terrible. That's a famous, great, <laughs> great, great one to use, man. And that's, and that's a great segue also to tonight's episode where we are talking about our imaginations. Because today we're going to delve deep into just random DM ideas we have. You know, we say this show is about all the things we do to try to make our games as good as they can be. And tonight we're going to talk about some of those things that maybe haven't made it in other conversations that don't fit necessarily in kind of the more structured kind of episode we normally do. Also, stuff we've been percolating for a while that maybe hasn't even made it into our games yet. So beware, these are unplay-tested, unfiltered, crazy, three wise DMs ideas all night tonight. All right, guys, you ready? Yes. What do you got? Let's throw out uh, Tony. Why don't we start with you? You're usually our leadoff hitter here. Let's start with, uh, how about we start with campaign ideas first? That sound good? Yeah. Well, you know, my underdark idea absolutely tanked. But <laughs> I think it'd be right for the right party. Right. No, it's all right. You know, we, we learn things out of failure. Something I would and I'm kind of itching to do. And now, Chris, uh, Dave's brother is trying to get me to do uh, the new version of the Tomb of Horror, the Tomb of Annihilation, because the Tomb of Horror doesn't sound horrifying enough. <laughs> but. I would no, like, now it's uh, now it's annihilation. Right, taking <laughs> it up to the next floor. <laughs> Honestly, but I would like to do something in Five E in Dark Sun. I think that would be a fun place to run a harder level campaign for players who have, you know, they've been around. My audience has really had a chance to do a lot of different environments, and uh, this would be something out of the box. You know, there is actually a group uh, of Dark Sun fans on Facebook who keep hoping 5e will come back out with the Dark Sun. It's never going to happen. Obviously, this is a hard time to roll out a setting full of slavery and cannibalism. That's not really going to meet the 2020, 2021, 2022 vibe, I don't think. But what if if you want to play a Manus person? I mean, and like that, this is such an opportunity. Well, that's, also, the, that's the beauty, though, right? I mean, that's the beauty. That's like um, I one thing that makes me think of it is Goodman Games re-releasing the 5e versions of Keep on the Borderlands. And now they just released the Temple of Elemental Evil oh, as these huge package deals. Right. But why not, as your own thing, take that campaign setting and throw it over? I mean, I had a campaign setting with Slaver's Bay that was full of slavery and probably cannibalism somewhere. Also unpublished. <laughs> I mean, there was a hag involved in the in the dark woods, so I feel like there was probably cannibalism in some way happening, right? <laughs> but this is a different pitch. This isn't exactly survival yeah. horror, but the survival aspect is higher. Also, there's a different flavor in this game. Like, for example, metal is super rare in this world. You're not going to have that heavily armored dwarf in his full plate clanking around in the desert in 160 degree weather or sense. 
I really liked the Dark Sun setting. In fact, it was one of the first campaign box sets I got, and one of the first ones I actually ran people through. Tony, did you ever play in my Dark Sun? I have played in Dark Sun back in the day, but not as you as DM, though. Jerry did, one of, our, one of our other gaming friends. Yes. A couple other folks did. So I did do, it wasn't a full campaign. We didn't get too deeply into it. But I really do like the setting in a lot of ways. I like the idea that your magic you know, basically harms the environment or drains other people of, of, of energy. I like the idea that you have to deal with bone weapons and stone weapons. And it's really hard to find good metallic weapons. I actually have an idea over here for other campaigns that involve something like that. So it is really neat. And there's this whole aspect of, okay, the world's dead. What do you do about it? Also, the original setting, Brom was the main artist, so that's all Brom art, and it's got this right. awesome, awesome visual look to it. Totally different from anything else in D&D. And then you have the dragon. You know, this ascendant dragon that is basically a god on Earth who basically is the great defiler who cast defiler magic. And that, that character was so cool. And, you know, the whole world's run by, 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 these, by these defiler priests who are building Sorcerer ziggurats. Yeah, so, yeah, Sorcerer Kings, right? Yeah, I, I would love to do it. I think it was a really cool setting. The only problem with the setting is it is, as some of our Sand. friends have mentioned, well, it's, it a death, everywhere. It's, it's a death trap. It is totally a death trap. There's more ways to, to die than survive in Dark Sun. And that's <laughs> the tricky part. It's got to be got players who want to do that, and they got to think it's fun. Well, I have to say that was one of my ideas. And if not, I was going to pitch some spell jamming. Ooh. I mean, actual crystal spheres. You're getting the ship. No, we're not going from the forest to the desert in our ship on Earth like I did in Storm King's Thunder. I mean, between worlds. Well, did you see one of the products that D&D, uh, everyone's talking about it, they just had this Future of D&D panel where they had all their designers on to talk about what's coming up next. Mm -hmm. Monsters of the Multiverse is coming. Yeah, there's yes. an astral dreadnought. Yeah, there's an astral dreadnought on the cover. So there's a real good chance that we might see some sort of spell jamming back in the game. Which could be pretty cool. One thing you don't have in D&D these days, not a lot of space. Not going, not a lot of space travel in today's Dungeons & Dragons. These people say, yeah, magic and space don't work together. I, I don't understand this. <laughs> space is magical. What about you, Dave? What do you have campaign idea-wise? All right. Well, geez. I mean, I was going to start off with, like, some, like, easier ones. But Tony comes out with, like, redoing Dark Sun, which I'm actually not familiar with. So it was interesting to hear some of, like, the the background of it like that. Um, so, so Dark Sun is po basically D&D &D post-apocalyptic gaming. Yeah. Like Mad Max for D&D. &D. That's basically what Dark Sun is. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. I mean, I've obviously heard of it. I just never, I had never looked through the setting or, or played in it uh, then. But okay, so I had some smaller guys I'll bring out maybe later, but I'll start with a big one. I'm actually, uh, I'm wanting, I'm going to be, uh, it's a plan, uh, but Planescape. I'm planning on going, you know, so very multiverse, very jumping mm. through planes, very sigil, the city of doors, very the infinite staircase, all of that kind of stuff. You know, plane shifting, plane hopping, different wacky worlds and lands and dimensions and universes and stuff. Uh, it's actually there's already a plan for it in something that I'm doing. Uh, it just really? hasn't it just hasn't. Yeah, the, the trigger hasn't been pulled yet. Huh. yet. Huh. Is this going to happen in uh, Curse of Strahd here? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I saw that release, though, about Morden Caden's Monsters of the Multiverse. They look really cool, man. They yeah. look really cool. Yeah, I, I'm definitely going to pick that up. Just to, even if I'm not on in different worlds like this, something is coming through a portal somewhere because they <laughs> probably got some baller 
monsters in there. I have always loved that style of play. It ties into the entire one-shot aspect very closely because you guys really don't want... Here's the thing, though. So I pitched the desert. I pitched Dark Sun. Well, what if my guy, the, you know, the, the crew, they're just bored of this four or five games in, or they want to change? Well, tough crackers. Good luck finding some trees. I mean, really, <laughs> where else are you going to explore Dark Sun underground? Maybe. But this, that's that scenery it changes with your imagination. You could take them literally anywhere. You know what I remember like about Dark Sun? Giant killer bees. And their honey was like super nutritious and healing, so you wanted it. But you now had to go fight off four foot long bees to get it. <laughs> Risk and reward, man. Uh, so, but Dave, that Planescape idea is really cool, and it is that neat, you know, that city, that 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 city of doors idea that Sigil is. You know, you come into Sigil, you step through a portal, you go have an adventure in the you know plane of elemental fire or where, wherever, or wherever you know, right? Yeah. yeah, pop back out. Yeah, that. It plays into that idea Tony always talks about, about changing the environment, having the setting change, making for a more interesting campaign. Planescape is the setting that did that the most. Yeah. And I, I would love for them to revisit a little bit of that. So we'll see. Maybe if they, they might be playing with it with the multiverse uh, monsters. I think they played with it a little bit with the Van Richten's Guide, too, where they started to show some of the other domains of dread. True. Um, Sure. So uh, different show. domains of that type of of gothic horror and body horror and stuff like that. But the yeah, Planescape is a is a big guy. The rest of us have respectfully left the the, the Van Richten's guy to the to to the Ravenloft, almost like Castlevania, which kind of is at this point. Kind of is, yeah. <laughs> but the Ravenloft DM. Very <laughs> much, yeah. Very yeah. much. Have not there you go. There's a surprise. There's my second. Uh, there, I'm going to do a little addendum just because we just said it. Uh, another campaign idea. I want to run a Call of Cthulhu campaign in Ravenloft so that people are actually horrified and scared and they're actually like Ben Helsing and Jonathan Harker, you know, <laughs> against Dracula. You want to power us way down is what you want to do. Yeah, like that's a way to get horror. There, That's horror, right? Well, you've seen how I do it, and the trick to horror is you actually you need something the players are actually afraid of. Giant plants. <laughs> so let's see. For me, campaign-wise, I I I I I, um, I have no desire to redo any D and D campaign that currently exists. That is not my uh, not not my style, not my steez. Um, for me, you know, if you've listened to the podcast for a while, you've heard me kick this around, and it's still kind of an idea that's percolating around in my head. I like worlds that are a little more historical, a little more, little more, you know, kind of historical weapon fighting kind of focused, a little more dial the magic back some. Not that you would limit player options, but limit how much magic's in the world at large. And I like the idea that you pull like kind of Princess Mononoke idea. Uh, there's some comics out there that delve into this, like Monstrous. The idea that there's these larger than life spirits of the land or monsters in the land or kind of like elemental kaiju type things that sort of define your world so what i've been kicking around for a while now is kind of a pseudo historical celtic roman kind of setting so you're talking like an iron age roughly european kind of setting where you have these uh looser confederation of tribes who are living more of a kind of a, a lifestyle that is a little more tribally focused 
with Romans, a more a more quote unquote industrialized. Well, industrialized isn't the right word, but that more organized city, you know, uh, warrior, you know, warlike civilization, kind of pressing on them. And then also in those Celtic lands, in those kind of unsettled lands, are these nature spirits, and they're big like you might be the spirit of the river or the spirit of the woods or it might just be things running around that are potentially uh, tearing up crops eating livestock threatening people but they're these larger than life kind of beings like you know kind of you know they're almost the spirits of the land and in the early part of the game these celtic players the players who are kind of the players would start in the celtic lands even if some of them were kind of roman they would be on that side and early on they're probably fighting these monsters to try to repel them to try to protect their civilization however later on as the romans start pressing more and more on where they are and trying to kind of conquer them they would get to a situation where you kind of wish those monsters those monsters could be on your side or could at least be beneficial to them as the romans as this kind of more powerful society is pressing on them so kind of a little bit of a balance kind of an kind of a magical environmental kind of thing mm. of okay if you drive all the magic out of the land how do you repel this you know warlike invading industrial style nation and i think that'd be pretty cool i think you could do a lot of really neat things in that with spirits of the land and spirits and kind of making it a more magical kind of world than a normal historical kind of setting would be and actually some of the ideas i have later kind of play into that but you would literally have like, okay, you're going to the river and maybe there's a spirit of the river. Now, maybe that spirit of the river is drowning people. Maybe it's helping people. You don't know. It depends how, how it feels about you. It depends how your culture and how your, not your culture, but how your tribe's interacting with it. Are you pissing off the spirits or not? That sort of thing would be kind would be really cool to me. Kind of a magical pseudo earth. And I've been kicking that around for a little while, but every time I pitch it, I don't know, I'm having a hard time getting player buy-in. No, I, I would, every time you've said it, 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 that interests me. I would be interested more to see actually how that plays with, like you were saying, not limiting player options, but trying to decrease magic overall. Because as we've seen, magic and abilities and stuff really start to get crazy out of control uh, pretty early, uh, especially with 5e. So that would be interesting to see how you play with that. On the reverse of that, something I was kicking around is I wanted to do a prehistoric game where Ooh, that could be fun. Yeah. Well, magic is much more intense. The gods and goddesses of the, the world are much more active. Uh, technology, however, is vastly it's non existent practically. It's all kind of like mm. stone weapons, kind of like dark sun, like stone and bone weapon kind of thing. Th that's actually taking it to a completely different level. So, yeah, yeah. Um, you're not going to find. Uh, you know who's not there the artificers not there for one you're not going to find people fighting with wheelock pistols um that like back in in like 2e and 1e they showed in what age you were gaming like what period what things were available so like yes. if you wanted a long sword well tough crackers you're not going to find one in the, the you know in ancient times no sir you'll find a short sword that's <laughs> what you get that, that, that's what you got you got short bows and the problem I ran into is, well, I think that that does it is a very fertile ground for like a heroic fantasy there where like you have these steamy jungles, dinosaurs, uh, undiscovered mysteries. And of course, you'd spin it differently. There's people and elves and so there's there's, you know, you're not like six of you running around the earth by yourselves like Land of the Lost. But <sighs> I don't want to again, just like you said, I, don't, I, don't, I do not want to limit the player's options in that respect. So maybe there is this. T I mean. You know, I can't say like outright that this technology is there. You know, maybe there's other beings who are spell jamming that came down that have this, but you're not going to find Cormier. 
You're not well, gonna it's like, that off. makes me think of like, uh, you know, the way in which you play with technology coming from elsewhere. That was very expedition to the barrier peak style, you know, where they started to introduce a lot of this this outer space stuff into your your medieval fantasy. Along those lines, um, one thing I've been wanting to play with is uh, this idea of uh, having this empire that has been taken over by worship of what I call the Pantheon, which are the accepted gods of my world. Um, and then there is this confederacy, the Nos, you know, kind of like the Gnostic uh, confederacy. That's all about arcane magic, but they have become heretical. So arcane magic within the empire itself has been completely outlawed. Um, and how that interplays with the characters whether they want to go and try. So kind of a, a little bit of a political uh, brinksmanship as well as to where do the players stand between the empire and this, these, the nose, as I call them, you know, the, the confederacy of arcane people. You know what would be cool with that? I like the idea, especially with divine magic, that the more powerful belief is, the stronger your God is and the stronger the magic is. Yeah. So it would be neat if you did something like that, where there was kind of a slider where depending on how things were developing, whether these this Gnostic council was stronger or the order was stronger, the slider kind of moved and either arcane magic was getting more powerful while priestly magic was getting weaker or the other way around. Or the other way, yeah. yeah. That'd be really cool. So I wanted to come back to, because we kind of touched on this idea of, okay, in a couple of our stuff, things, we touched on this idea of how do you do a campaign that is a little different technology-wise and still not ruin the character or the player options? also want to mention, Tony, uh, your, that campaign, that kind of more prehistoric kind of God-focused campaign. You might want to check out Mystical, uh, Mystic Odyssey, or the Odyssey of Theros book, because they do a Greek setting there, taken from magic, that kind of has elements of that. Like, everyone's God-touched, and they do some really cool things in there. You might want to take a look at for inspiration. I actually, I don't have that book, but it is one of those worlds. I'm like, man, this could be a really cool campaign setting. And I know you're the one who's really more into the classical kind of mythology and stuff. So I would say check that out. But okay, so to get back to this idea, can you do a low magic campaign without limiting player classes? I think you can. I think you do it this way. The players, first of all, you adjust. So, for instance, if you wanted to do that prehistoric campaign, you said you can't have an artificer. I would disagree, but your artificer is no longer working with metal and tools. The artificer is now working with stone tools. So yeah. think about, like, there's a lot of kind of prehistoric cartoons that have, like, think about the Flintstones, right? Now your artificer is the guy who makes the, the, the foot-powered car. Your artificer is the guy who figures out how to make a, uh, a, a dinosaur-driven washing machine. So I think you can still do it, but you totally take it down to, the, okay, he works with the material he has. In the game world I was looking at, like, okay, so how can you do warlocks and wizards and sorcerers in a world where there's not a lot of other magic around? First of all, NPC-wise, I marginalize my magic users. So from the NPC point of view, there is maybe a druid in the region. Maybe there's a witch out there somewhere who's technically a sorceress or technically a wizard. There's maybe some around, but they are marginalized. They are out on their own and kind of, kind of shunned by society living on their own. Another aspect of it should be there's a lot of wilderness around where people can kind of live on their own so they don't need to interact with people. In that case, I guess a little bit like kind of witches, the last witcher I played, actually. The other thing you do is you can have characters come in as the first of this type. So if you have a warlock, maybe no one else has a warlock patron. He's the first warlock anyone's seen. 
Like you can do that with a historically kind of more primitive kind of setting. Sorcerers are easy because, okay, someone got someone had sex with a spirit and that's how they bore a sorcerer. <laughs> you know, they get they, the they get only way. <laughs> <laughs> well, isn't that how sorcerers work? Draconic, According they to all seem to imply yeah. crossbreeding. Well, there's there is always the wild magic idea, but yeah, that idea that there is someone that this first it first happens to, yeah, and then it starts to spread from there. And I'll tell you, the hardest one is the wizard. The, the, the artificer a little bit, but at least the artificer is just kind of infusing things into tools. And the tool can be technologically advanced or not, so long as it fits the setting fine. That you know, An artificer might just be a blacksmith in that setting where they're fooling around with weapons and yeah. discovering new ways to do that. So but that can be your artificer. The wizard's hard because they're more academic. So your wizard is literally someone wandering around discovering how arcane magic works in, without a teacher. Or maybe he runs into with a witch who does know wizard magic, but she's only like first to third level. So she can't even teach him that much. And then in that setting I'm talking about where you have this Roman empire they're butting up against. Well, maybe there is a, there are, there is a wizard or two in Rome. Maybe there's a library there. Maybe getting to Rome lets this wizard who's figuring out for himself, learn some cool, interesting new things. So I think there's always a way to do it. You don't need to take away what classes you let the characters use, but you tweak how they fit into the setting. Okay, you you want to play a warlock. I'm going to tell you this is how this works in this world. This is what you have. Like, You're not really taking anything away, but you're letting them know what to expect as far as interactions. You're not going to have other warlocks. Your patron isn't going to have other people under them. So that kind of thing, you just kind of work it in, I think. Well, yeah, there'll be, there will be ways in which you will have to get player buy-in so that they are okay with you possibly slowing up some of the possible things that they want to do. Uh, because... Like, as we've seen, you can level up first to fifth really mm -hmm. quick. I mean, first to second is a session or two, yeah, you know? Well, or should be. licensed material because that mean, my God, I could it might be, it, it might be in the middle of the session. Um, yeah. But yeah, exactly. So how do you, but if the player has buy-in, like for, for me as a player, I might be into that because I enjoy that idea of I have to build my character and seeking these things out matters. But there should be some interplay with that with other character classes, too, as we've talked about, so that you don't have the fighter that's all of a sudden 10th level destroying everything and you're still casting magic missile like you're like you're a baller. Well, right. But like, I, I wouldn't <laughs> slow any of that stuff down, to be honest with you. The only classic is a little slowed down as wizard because no one else relies on the rest of the setting to give them their things. The Warlock still gets all their powers. Sorcerer still gets all their powers. That's all internal. The Wizard, the only thing the Wizard loses out on, because even when the Wizard advances, the spells they get on advancement, they just learn spontaneously. They discover. The Wizard loses out on some of the stuff he might be able to find. But okay, okay. you make, you make okay. those kind of plot points. I like, got it sounds like it should limit the players, but in practice, you could totally do it without limiting the players in any way. I see what you're or saying. you could limit the players a little bit and maybe limit other aspects. The other thing I would do, because you got to kind of, you got to kind of uh, balance the rest of the world against these magic users, is I would introduce more interesting things to do martially, formation-wise and combat-wise, that mean that these wizards aren't just coming in like, oh yeah, I'm the only person on earth who knows fireball. Suck it. You know, you would need to kind of have stronger enemies to kind of offset that a little bit or give like the enemy martial classes a way to kind of do things against that, which we can get into or some other ideas I have. Or, or you just run them through Barovia and you won't have to worry about them getting anything magical for like 10 levels. 
That is true. Right. It's, that is at true. least if I'm uh... <laughs> We did finally get magic stuff in Barovia. Okay, we've we spent a bit of time. I'm sorry, go ahead, Tony. No, I said, no we, we certainly did. But yeah, no, you would. You would, I think Thorn's onto something. We, things could be adjusted. Like the wizard would have to find magical spells in obscure places. Like perhaps yeah. they're a seeker of magic. Like and at the prehistoric idea, I would throw out that yes, the prehistoric times and the Earth is new again. But wait, there's evidence of a civilization that existed before that, and perhaps you could find your technology and magic there. But yeah, yeah, there's your Lovecraft. There, you know, you have yeah. you have the uh, you have the elder race there. The, you yeah, know, the, you have to. It has to be something. You have to have some previous thing there, or else none of it makes sense because you have no, you know. Then you lose a problem. lot of what makes D and D great. I think. I mean, do you need the higher level technology? I think you could basically have the players discovering, like discovering new things. Like instead of letting the like instead of letting the wizard uh, expand his knowledge by finding other spell books, I might let that wizard who's inventing magic essentially go commune and make a role to see if they learn something or, or allow them out. more ability to research things well, they, and, exactly. and find it out. Yeah. And, and discover and be the first to discover alchemy, whatever. Yeah. Now I will say, but I will say like, if you, if you read Lovecraft, that is how the Lovecraft world worked. There were ancient races that we're not aware of because they were so old that the geological records destroyed at this point. Yeah. Like there's, there are races in Lovecraft older than our rocks except for in some places where you maybe can find them, like Antarctica. So you could totally yeah. play with that idea, and it could be pretty cool. But, like, I don't think the game loses anything if I'm saying you can't get a wheel lock pistol in the Roman era. I don't think anyone's going to cry. Now, do I let them use – do you let everyone use longbows? Guess another idea I have. So, so, so we talked about our campaign ideas. Let's talk about more mechanical ideas, more combat-focused ideas, or other kinds of mechanics and counter-focused ideas. One of the ones that ties into what we were just talking about that I was kicking around, it ties into the Dark Sun campaign Tony was talking about. It ties into the Celtic campaign I was talking about. This was a feature of both of those settings in second edition. I like the idea that if you're going to do something where the technology level is lower, you maybe start off with swords and weapons that are not as high quality. So maybe they get a negative two to attack and damage or a negative one. But then you also allow the idea that there's a higher quality sword that is, of course, equal, and a, even higher qualities of sword that maybe are plus one, plus two non-magically. Now, I've always liked this idea that you can have weapons where you're starting off where, you know, technology is now a factor in the game. Because if you get a low quality sword, it's not great, and maybe it can break on you. If you get a high quality sword, it's much better. And so getting access to that higher technology level is important to you beyond even your magical stuff. So that's one thing I've kicked around a lot. One one of my ideas I've thought about putting, especially in these campaigns that are talking about doing things that are more low, like low tech than your average D&D setting. That's a good way to show that is, okay, maybe there's some weapons you don't have access to, like the guns, arguably maybe longbows, although a longbow, longbows are funny because historically the trees are there. People knew how to make a bow. It's just for some reason you don't get to like the, the 12th or 13th of, uh, century where people finally start putting together English longbows. And the Mongols start, start perfecting their kind of composite bows that are just as strong as English longbows. But like the tech was there. It just took a while for people to decide they wanted to figure out how to draw a 150-pound bow. Piece of cake. A mechanic I would fool around with, which I have to tell you might be a little unpopular at the tables that we sit at. Uh, I don't believe you should recover all of your wounds in this situation. This is what I'm pitching. Uh, after a long rest, a lot of people have said that. Lots uh, of people. Yeah. Have said you that. can I mean, just go to your uh, go to some of the hardcore mode five uh, E stuff, and you'll start to see more and more of that kind of stuff. 
And I, I agree with you, Tony. I kind of dig that idea. I do. I kind of dig the idea of uh, some people have kicked around as well. So you got your 10th level, you get 10 hit dice. With your long rest, you roll 10 hit dice. And that's what you're getting back plus the con. You know, this yeah. idea that it's not a, it's not a, oh my God, I'm perfectly 100%, but it's this, and also lingering wounds, right? A limp, something like that, maybe. I don't know. Is that where they, you're going with it? They experimented with all kinds of stuff back in the day, like rules of surrounding pain. Dragon Age did really a fine job with if you got dropped, like if, say, if you got knocked at zero hit points, you would have an issue unless so some degree of superior healing took place. Like perhaps you had uh, limited use of an arm or your movement was slowed from your leg. Like you were permanently crippled, but, you know, you didn't get dropped at zero hit points, dust yourself off, take a long rest and say, wow, a T-Rex ran me over. Boy, that stunk. Well, it is, like, at least that way you start going to get back, like, half your hit points, right? If I, I mean, or, or maybe you do even get back all your hit points if you do, like, that dice thing. Like, roll roll dice equal to your level instead of just get all your full healing back. I think I even mean, that's very liberal. Like, back in the day, I, I got, last time I'll say this, this episode, hold me to that. But, like, you get, like, one hit point back a day, which is ridiculous. That's horrible. You we don't Actually, you used to get, that. like, two hit points back a week. Like, you, if you lost ten hit points... Theoretically, in second edition, you had to go home for a couple Long months to heal. <laughs> yeah, we're not doing that, but there's got to be a, a, a place we could be in between those where your wounds are more substantial and it puts more of a focus on a need for healing magic. I don't mm-hmm. think that that's a terrible idea because no. if we think about it with healing magic too, I'm still rolling dice out, so you might get two plus whatever my mod is. You know, I might roll two ones on my freaking D8s, you know? But you know what? I feel like if you had to use healing magic to restore everyone's hit points every day. Now, however, having said that, we do every character has hit dice every day, too. So that's part of the healing pool. But I do feel like you would wind up running out of too much healing. Like you would almost need two. because what would you basically do? How does that play out? You basically wind up long resting, taking the next day to just heal everybody, long resting again. And OK, now we're back on the on the trail. It's almost like instead of one long rest, you have two long rest. And, you know, that by itself doesn't have like real value. Like I'm making you rest yeah. longer, just making the player simply take an additional long rest because healing has been slowed down. I don't feel has any value, but it would give a perspective on what combats are we going to get involved in and would force a greater emphasis on tactics. Like, Mm -hmm. honestly, if I know I could get in a fight, get down to half hit points, and I've already fought three encounters, so we're probably up for a long rest, that kind of does significantly decrease the tension. That's true. I mean, it's it's tough, you know, and it's uh, well, I do think it's a good idea, first of all. And I know people are talking about this. I was I was listening to Professor to uh, to uh, Dungeon Craft, Professor yeah. Dungeon Master, because another thing announced during this Watsy uh, panel was that in 2024, they're going to release some kind of new version of D&D, maybe like a 5.5 kind of thing like they did in 3.5 or just kind of a revamping of the rules with the stuff they've learned so far since 5th edition is now 10, will have been 10 years old at that time. Oh my God. And they're already working on this. And one of the things that, so one of the things It's that also going to be the 50th anniversary of D&D itself. Yeah. So that's one of the reasons they're also... I mean, to be... Uh, to be uh, we, so one of the things that Professor Dungeon Master from Dungeon Craft was saying about this is he also... He wishes the game was more deadly. He wishes you could that, that players died and they didn't have death saves. They just died. And 
you know, slower healing. So this is something that's out there that a lot of people are talking about maybe seeing in that next edition. I do have the question, though, is the game more fun for the players if it's that much harder to heal? Because I feel like in a lot of ways, like we found like with critical misses or lingering injuries, they sound great on paper. To a dungeon master, they feel like, yeah, that's going to make my campaign feel really gritty. And to a player, it just kind of starts being like, yeah, that's kind of a pain in the ass. So do you think these would be, can you do this in a way that makes it fun for the players? I feel that completely and entirely depends upon the vibe of the campaign. Because if you guys are want to have a combat high sword and sorcery game, like like how we're running at Ravenloft, like we see some monsters, like if a Hydra jumped out of the woods, we would attack it. There is no question <laughs> I'd be a vampire with vampire fangs. But okay, you get the idea. We'd be all over that. Hawk would be trying to wrestle the Hydra to the ground. Um, but if you're looking at a more, that's what I found attractive about the Dark Sun campaign idea. It's a little higher difficulty. It's mm. like we're taking it off of casual and we're raising the difficulty up to the next level. That that's what fun. the advantage that, of that would be. So and to be fair, to be fair about my comment, everything I said about negative two weapons also apply, also has that will it be fun for the players aspect to it. Anytime we're talking about anything that makes it harder on the players, you need players who want to go with that, or they're just gonna be like, eh, that's just a pain in the ass. Just give me the good stuff. Why do I got to deal with this? You know? Yeah, I would say two points because I like both of those points. I think there's great stuff there, Thorne. I think one of the things with the idea of more. Because you've already you've always talked about a lot of weapon based stuff and different weapons and, yeah and how they how they operate in the world and I dig that and it makes me go back to something I heard in an interview with Mike Merles uh, when they were designing 5e and one of the reasons that they used average damage for monsters because he was saying if you want if you everyone would just use average damage we could have different damages for different weaponry but i kind of like because they could then assign a very specific six seven eight twelve fifteen one to whatever weapon instead of a a, a variable but i Such like a whiny thing for a game designer to say I, but i'm I sorry like, i'm making enemies here but like isn't that though it's like yeah but randomness is more fun general no, and that's I, actually watchy knows this very well they've written articles about it. yeah but for me i think rolling dice is fun. So yeah, I understand his point, but where I'm getting with it, the point I'm making is how your idea kind of adds to that. So this idea of different qualities of workmanship offer different benefits. And uh, I go back to Pathfinder. They had the idea of masterwork weapons, which were not magical weapons, but they still granted a plus one because it was so finely crafted. And that makes sense, right? You know, if you have the Hattori Hanzo katana, it's mm. gonna be better than katana on player's handbook, page 24, right? right? So I like that idea, the idea of different modifiers um, for weaponry and how you might be able to increase it or decrease it. Uh, one thing even going further than that, what would you do in terms of the mechanic of weapons wearing down over time shields wearing down armor wearing down you know we we play with this idea that i just keep blasting my shield into a stone wall and a hydra and a tree and it stays just as sharp as it ever was right instead of a possibly a diminishing returns idea right that's a great question 
and I'll, I'll inject a little bit of historic of, of, of my like what I've learned historically. Swords, all weapons do have a chance to break in real life. Everything can break, but barring catastrophic failure, swords, uh, armor, things made of metal, for the most part, if cared for and mended after each battle, will continue to serve for a long time. They, they're pretty durable so long as you take care of them. Because honestly, you really it's very hard to put a hole in a piece of plate mail. And if you put a hole in a piece of chain mail, you just take another link and you patch it together. Put it in, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so so if you care for those things, that they don't wear down necessarily. However, that does mean that you're sharpening them all the time. And it can be if you sharpen something enough, you remove so much material from it that you might need to replace it. Because frankly, in D&D, you're fighting more than any medieval soldier ever did. Maybe <laughs> sword. Because anyone ever had to use a sword. <laughs> a great example that happened in the Woodstock game that was not this specific, but it worked in the same way was when we came to the beachhead that had black puddings on it. Oh yeah. And my armor was and shield were affected for several game sessions following that until we got to the Elven City and we were able to kind of uh, get some some magical weapons and and that kind of stuff. So. It's interesting because it does change the the nature of the game, and then it's even, to, even better with Rust monsters. But yeah, wanna, right. <laughs> let, let, let me round off on that though, because there's two other things I wanted to say. One is, so while that's true of kind of your metal stuff, arrows for the most part break on impact, so on you can you, you very seldom get arrows back. In shields, were essentially disposable. Like yeah. even if you look at like Viking Viking duel rules, you, the Viking duel went through. Every warrior had three shields he could grab, and if you broke a shield, you will grab another shield. Because shields were not made of metal. Shields were generally made of some shields in some cultures were made of hide. There are a few cultures that made small shields out of metal, like India's got some metal shields. But for the most part, shields were made of wood, often light wood that was meant to kind of. In fact, there's, I've seen people argue, people like uh, Hema recreationists who are kind of trying to do experimental archaeology yeah. with the Viking weapons. Some of the ones who have gotten deepest into it, and who I respect because they have a lot of academic rigor, they're going by sources and they're looking at archaeological evidence and all this stuff. They think that the shield was made to grab weapons. The oh. Viking shield, the big round Viking shield, they think that it was you wanted your enemy to try to slash his sword into the side of your shield because now you have his sword in your shield. And if you just twist your wrist, you rip it out of his hand or you pull it out of position. And then you can you can lop his arm off because the way the Viking sword and shield was made, the sword was really like a heavy cleaving kind of weapon. It was really made for strong slashes in the shield was this kind of leverage weapon you used to get them out of the, their protection out of the way so you can clean it. I so you. if they stick a, a sword in the edge of your shield, you twist the sword open, their wrist opens up, and you try to lop their hand off before they can block with their with their shield. Like it's like a weapon system that works like that that relies on the shield being degradable. Sorry, very nerdy, getting deep no, into it. No, that's but, right. but that goes with that. So like shields probably should be replaced. Like if you have a shield, you should probably have like three on your horse or in a wagon or something because that's going to get ripped up every combat. This all comes full circle because we've, in the past, personally, I have complained about how it's too easy to attack things that have magic and non-magic weapon immunity because you have magic weapons in D&D from a relatively early time. Well, now if you're talking about non-magical plus two weapons, maybe your entire slate of weapons up to, until you get to plus three is not magical. Mm. Well, now your vampires are a lot tougher. Your werewolves are a lot tougher because people aren't running around with magic swords so easily. Of course, that does not stop Eldritch Blast from blowing their head off. But still, I'm just saying. <laughs> um, 
And then uh, the second point to Tony's point, um, and then going back to reference Professor Dungeon Master too, because one of the things that he talks about, because I've heard him talk about all of those kind of hardcore rules and and no death saves and stuff like that. And I got to say, I would love to play in one of his games just to see how it runs, right? But one thing that I do think is kind of interesting and also adds some level of verisimilitude, because I can understand that you get better at fighting, you get better at spellcasting. But the idea that I just consistently get better at being unkillable. Uh, so what he does is he will cap hit points at a certain level. Once you hit this level, that's the amount of hit points you have forever now. You know, you'll get back to it, right? If you have 50 hit points, you can return to 50, but you don't have 150 hit points. And I think that's, Tony, what do you think on that? Because that's something that is easy to do where you say let uh, you cap it at level whatever, whatever amount of hit points you have, or a certain X number that you can hit, and you can't go past that. First, Everything else can still increase. First edition capped your hit dice at a certain point. So you, you got still, like two or three hit points. After. Uh, precisely. So it was really dramatically uh, diminished from that. Also, Masterwork weapons, as far as I was aware, were first introduced in Oriental Adventures back in the 80s. For D&D, not to say I don't yeah. know who did it first, Pathfinder. We had it in second edition, not, too. Second edition had them, too. I don't know if third edition did them. But my only, I think all these are great points, but I would just have that word of caution. That like we saw with uh, the, the Call of Cthulhu game that we board game with. If we add uh, too many mechanics, we lose some of the magic of 5e, which is that it runs very smooth. Mm. I mean, honest to God, we if I said, the, you know, to... Any campaign I'm in, how much gold did we get out of the last session? I might get a straight answer. But, like, agreeing on who's carrying what gold, oh, it starts getting a little touchy now. Right? We can't even properly track encumbrance. Like, who, who are we kidding? I'm going to say, how many, how much durability is left on my longsword? I actually, I totally agree. And that's yeah. why I generally, when I'm talking about things I want to add, it generally does not involve like say like adding a new stat you got to track on your weapon. You we talked, you know, David mentioned that like there's like a lot of weapon stuff that I've I've kind of kicked around over the years. Uh, so like all that stuff instead of being tied to the idea that I need to like have this extra stat I'm tracking on my weapon or kind of know what kind of armor my opponent has, I tend to try to tie them all to the idea that you have an extra ability. So some of them are tied to like other combat options. Like you already have in combat, you have grapple, you have push, you have shove, you have disarm, you have all these things you can do. I'm not sure if disarm is a position. But you have all these things you can do. You can add a few more things to that and add more depth to your game. You can add maybe an extra mechanic to a weapon and add more depth to the game. So some of the things I've been playing around with there that I think could make combat more interesting, but at the same time not make it too much more complicated, are things like fighting formations. So, for example, maybe you tie this to proficiency. Maybe this isn't just something that everyone can do. But you could have a formation like a shield wall, where if everyone's adjacent to each other using a shield, they don't have the shield wall proficiency. They, everyone, you, you, you give a armor class bonus to the person to the left and right of you. So maybe it's plus one, maybe it's plus two. I mean, cumulative plus two means you're giving that person a plus four. Yeah. That is pretty accurate. I mean, as far as how strongly does a shield wall protect you. But now, you, now the enemy has to attack them a totally different way. Another formation I was playing around with was the pike, uh, kind of a pike formation. And honestly, I'm not even sure you needed extra mechanic for this, because if you have a bunch of pikemen with sentinel, 
and now the pike has a 10-foot reach. So anyone who tries to come within that reach can get hit at 10 feet and stopped. And they can also be hit by the guys adjacent to the, like kind of adjacent to the person they're coming to. You can stop almost anyone from getting close to you. So you almost don't need an extra mechanic to make that interesting. But these formations, I think, are one way to make martial combat more interesting without involving magic. You know, maybe let's say you take that shield wall idea and maybe you throw a saving throw bonus on it in addition to the bonus to armor class. So now they're also they can also withstand fireballs better. Maybe you give them a way to kind of maybe you let them absorb some damage somehow. But I like you know this idea of I, I've just kind of played with this for a while, this idea that you have characters or, that can fight in formation to add a hard bonus to overcome to what they do, which means the characters have to find a new way to attack them. Or maybe the characters do it. It's like a uh, it's like a subclass on a subclass. It's like you took like you go battle master and then you go like the next level to like, you know, building <laughs> formations as a battle master. Cause it's similar, right? With the superiority dice and the ability to get effects to happen because of your prowess with your weapon. Uh, so I yeah. think that's really cool. Well, you, your prowess kind of fighting with each other. Maybe there's another, like you could do like a boar snout formation, kind of a flying wedge. And that might be, and, and this also, you know, shield wall battle. A lot of times you're pushing with your shield and the person behind you is also pushing you. So you're kind of, you've got, you've got to push you know, and, and, and pike formation did this too. They call it a push a pike where you wind up everyone's, the, the pike formation is actually not hurting each other because they're hitting armor, but they're trying to push. And by pushing the other pike formation, they're able to get it in a vulnerable position where people start dying. So something that kind of is like more of a strength focused formation that you can use to bull through people or push a formation back or break a formation and just throwing them out there is either things anyone can do or things that you can do with a proficiency or with a uh, with a uh, with a feat. I think could be pretty cool. Tied into that, I would love to I would love to expand some of what weapons can do. So one of the ideas I have been kicking around is in real combat, pole weapons are really important. Like if you're like a medieval combat, your pole weapon you, you would probably have a pole weapon, a sidearm which is a sword, and then a dagger. And the reason you have the sidearm is because you get to situations where the pole weapon can't it is less useful, but in most other situations the pole weapon's superior. Mm -hmm. So you want the reach. So I like the idea of maybe adding another kind of reach to the game, extended reach or long reach, where this weapon has reach of 15 feet, but if someone's within five feet of you, you have disadvantage to hit them and maybe disadvantage to attack entirely. Maybe you treat it like range combat. So when someone closes on you, now you're gonna you're gonna want to drop your pole weapon and pull your sword. And I think that'd be interesting to apply to almost all of the pole arms or give you the option. Maybe you can have a pole arm with regular reach or long reach, knowing that long reach has a negative effect to it. I don't know. What do you guys think about that? I think that's a very neat idea. I just be careful on what campaign that I would introduce that with. So if I was introducing a first time player, I certainly wouldn't toss that in. Like they're going to have enough going on. Trying it's to a little cracking. But, like, for the people who've really been into this, like, you've been playing for a hot minute, then that's cool. Then that does give you a little bit more depth that 5e is kind of a little sparse on in some areas. It's not I think that goes for, for a lot of the things that we were just discussing is we kind of qualified most of these things by saying I would want, you know, for Tony, you said for your your Dark Sun or your, or your um, prehistoric campaign, you would want four people that really have yes. been around the block with you. Because you want them to bring in that knowledge and that trust of your style and your game to the table to begin with. Because, yeah, like with the Rhyme of the Frostmaiden group where they're first playing, would I necessarily want to add additional mechanics? Probably not. 
Mm. But if that's just something that the weapon does, I think that that's a very possible thing where that's because it's no different than the idea that some weapons have the finesse quality or the throne quality or, you know, different ranges and things of that nature. Well, you can even maybe like the way you might introduce it is be like, okay, when you're getting a polearm, you have the choice. Do you want it to be reach as normal or do you want it to be long reach? But when it's long reach, if someone's adjacent to you, you have a negative. You know, yeah. you can almost just throw it in without making you almost don't change the base weapon. You just give them the opportunity to put a bigger pole on it, um, except maybe. And also it would also make pikes make a little more sense because you know, maybe they have 20 foot reach instead, because right now the pike is like a 30 pound weapon for that has no advantage. It's 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 terrible. No one's going to use the pike right now. So your pike formation might make you want to use the pike. 20 foot reach might make you want to use the pike as it stands right now. No one wants the pike. Reach is funny because as you were a polearm master in my Storm King's Thunder game, I've kept, I've kept going to myself, how in God's name does this guy have a better reach than my Storm Giant with a great sword? <laughs> For the record, one of the other changes I would make is I, 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 I like the idea of, okay, if we introduce long reach, I might allow the great axe and the great sword to have reach because technically they should. Yeah, they definitely the great sword it definitely reaches like I've seen people do Montante in exhibitions. The Monta Montante is a historical Italian great sword. You have reach with that. Like no I have a master of that weapon in case anybody's interested. <laughs> you ever <laughs> seen that? They're really cool, actually, the demonstrations. Like they're basically just whipping the weapon around like like in a, in a big in like big circles. Yeah, my grandfather taught me to use it. It's a family weapon. It should be. It should be. This should be the Levecchi thing. So what about well, you guys? Yeah. Tony, I mean, a storm giant with a great sword has a ten foot reach. Correct. Yeah. But Mr. Fantastic the Bugbear had like a fifteen or twenty. Uh, 15. Well, that was because again, that wasn't a human fighter guy with the with the pole arm. That was the bugbear that has extended reach as a monster feature to begin with so yeah uh it was a little bit of playing uh finding some of the loopholes that allowed for that 15 foot reach I mean, that I, he was hoping well, a loophole was, that wasn't a loophole that was right well, it's there. A way, okay not loophole but a way in which you you optimized getting the reach that you felt that a pole arm should have how about that it was not my goal, but that was why I picked the bugbear because I, I like yeah. the combination. The bugbear is effectively your NBA center of D and D races. It was definitely an interesting character to see in there. Well, I also want to point out how tall is, is a is a is a fire giant. Well, a storm giant off the top of my head, I believe, is twenty four feet high. So I gotta agree with Tony. This makes no sense. the The giant with a great sword's reach should not be ten feet because Okay, a human with a great sword can reach five feet, which well, is pretty much how tall a human is. So, yeah. A guy should be able to reach its height, as far I as I'm feel concerned. My first thought is so if we go into gridded combat, right? We put 26 it on a battle. feet, excuse me. Yeah, we put it on a battle mat, right? That, if you take a huge figure and put it down, it takes up what? It takes up like four squares? Yes. So, I think part of that is. No, no, huge, I'm sorry, large the, figures, four squares, huge figures, 16 but, squares, I think. Yeah, so large, it, it or, shows no, nine that, squares, nine. that level of, of additional reach because you already, just from the size of the figure to your person, is already like, you know, 25 feet, let's say, even if you're only five feet away from them. Yeah, but, it, I mean, reach should be something that cancels out. 
Like if someone has a if a if a giant can reach you 20 feet away, you should have to go through 20 feet of of risk to get close enough to hit him with your five foot reach. Now you can make an argument that everyone's really short to a giant, and there is an issue of attacking low. You lose some reach because you're you're attacking from your shoulder. But I still think 10 feet with a great sword that doesn't make any damn sense for a giant. At <laughs> least 15 or 20 feet. At least that's just making that's just making it too easy on the players. Like that is not at all something I could see for a giant. Hill giant, sure, but yeah, the 26 foot tall storm giant. I'm like, hmm. Them's right long here. arms. How about every giant gets to soccer kick one, you know, as a bonus action? (laughs) (laughs) With like a 20, with like a 30 foot pushback. If you you, you punt, you deal damage and you get like a 30 foot pushback unless they make a strength save. The uh, Storm King's Thunder did introduce some interesting optional giant rules. Like the Storm Giant could do a thunderous stomp. Yes. uh, (laughs) Things like that. We never saw those. Did you not use them? No, he, you did do, he did do at least one of them. I remember at least one. So what about some other ideas? I got a bunch here for weapons. If you guys want me to keep going on with uh, combat. Well, I, I know you're very into having specific, uh, unique uh, period weapons that where Dungeons and Dragons is like, and I have a sword and that breaks your heart, you know, from a little bit well, in second edition, they started introducing more, more unique weapons that had little bonuses to them. Like plus one to parry plus one, the AC. And I loved that. I loved it picking a unique sword i don't know was that not fun um i did not do that i'm gonna be uh, very straight with you like really if you get there's charts in there there's charts within charts like the original unorthorkana good god well the the chain mail has a slashing bonus but it's more vulnerable to the mace and i'm like we're not breaking out the, you know the blackboard when i'm right there <laughs> i attack i attack i attack i deal damage you know that that's the way it needs to run so what about this? Here's another idea for another polearm idea. A lot of my ideas are polearm focused because polearms historically were much more interesting than they are in the game. How about any weapon with a hook on it? Many polearms have a hook on the back for exactly this reason, can right. grapple at reach. Cool. So the grapple ability says you need to have a free hand to grapple. I would say any pole, like, like polearms that have a hook on them or maybe some swords or axes that have hooks on them, have the ability to grapple at the within as long as they're within your weapon reach and they count as your free hand for executing the grapple. What do you think of that? That's interesting. We could give that a play test. Yeah, absolutely. I don't see what, any real problem with that necessarily. Necessarily. Like my audacious ideas about called shots. <laughs> you want to come back? Yeah, go ahead. Let, let's uh, let, let's build that out. What do you want to do with called shots? It's a it's Even a great idea. That was an optional rule. It, it's a great and terrible idea, is what it is. For example, if Dave says I want to punch Tony in his giant shots, uh, and that's my <laughs> attack roll. Well, um, in as you were quite aware, do I get you know, bonuses because it's that much easier to get? Honestly, <laughs> you should be getting at least like a plus four. Uh, opposed to a negative four, but in all seriousness, um, you can't. There's no targeting. Yeah. But the problem yeah. there is, like, what if I say I want to punch, I want to kick Dave in the leg, and I do, and it's like, now I'm going to knock you down, I'm going to do your movement penalties. The things that go with that aren't really thought out. Like, every time you have an archer, guess what he's doing? He's shooting the giant in the eyes. Like, <laughs> every freaking time. So I think some people have made the point that... Uh, Attempting to explain it away is that you're always attempting to take your most advantageous shot. But with that said, shooting something in the eye to create a blinded effect is a lot different, right? So, you know, what are you going to do? 
you could argue, I mean, so first of all, so the way we've done this, and Tony, correct me if I'm wrong, the way we did this in second edition house rolling was you could take a negative four to shoot someone in the spot of your choice. And then what, it was an automatic crit, right? It was, it was max damage. And then you could take a negative eight to do a called critical shooting right. them and say the eye or chopping off their head. And that was an automatic crit if it hit, right? Correct. And then we, you, then the, the DM had the option to add some things. I don't think we really did that, did we? No, no. And there was stuff in combat and tactics too, which was neat and bigger criticals for bigger weapons, which I like that idea. Like a dagger should not produce the same critical of, you know, the great sword. And I know some of the rogues in the gallery are like, boo, but no seriousness. Right now a dagger is the same reach as a great sword. I, yeah, no, 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 I, I don't like it. <laughs> at least we well, they are, I mean, other editions, earlier editions had the range for criticals. You yeah. Know, that certain earlier, weapons do 16 to 20 is a crit. I mean, you know, earlier editions also had the rules that you did less damage. Like, like every weapon had a small to medium and large yeah. damage range. And the reason for that was that a smaller weapon, like a dagger, isn't going to do as much damage against a large creature because it's not going to get that deep into the nitty gritty. Right. At the same time, a larger weapon like a sword or especially like a great sword is going to do more damage to a larger creature because they have more of them to hew at. So they can basically take off a larger percentage of the hit points than a regular size human killing, human optimized killing weapon would. So I actually, a lot of people said that didn't make sense. I thought that made total sense. Especially once you start thinking, okay, why is a dagger doing the, why is a dagger doing as much damage to an elephant as it does to a human? You know, when a dagger <laughs> can barely get through an elephant's skin, frankly. Well, you know what? I again, and I can attack a dragon with a pole. I mean, honestly, <laughs> I can run up to the age, the ancient red dragon, and crack that dragon right on the snout with that pole, and he could be like, "Ow." Despite the <laughs> fact his scales would repel repel arrows, and yeah, no. <laughs> here's here's another weapon idea and this comes actually speaking of poles so later on in in european history as you kind of get more and more heavy armor uh they get so well armored that they stop using shields knights kind of stop using shields and they start using two-handed weapons to deal more damage and then they move to two-handed weapons that are more optimized for being armor piercing and fighting weapons they get the pole axe which is sort of like a quarter staff with a basically a hammer and an axe on the end and then the bottom's also shot with a spear and it's got a spear on top it's kind of a multi-tool but one of the things about it is the pole axe also has an iron has usually like a langette and a strong shaft so you can use it to block weapons so what do you think about letting some two-handed weapons that have a, that are kind of specialized like that give you a bonus to your armor class? So yeah, you're not carrying a shield, but maybe this weapon is is set up in such a way that it does defend you some, so you get a plus one instead of the shield's plus two. Yeah, I mean you see that with uh, some of the actions on certain NPC builds uh, that mm. have the parry action that adds, I think, uh, plus two to their AC or plus three. I am a huge fan that the shield gives plus two now. That was yes. always insulting in the early editions where it's like, why do I bother? Everybody in the universe used sword and shield combo or the the, the shield and the axe or something to that effect. I yeah, mean, historically speaking, it was the, you're not going in there like, oh, I'm dual wielding long swords. You're freaking dead. You're going to get cut <laughs> down. Until, yeah, so basically shields start phasing out later on when armor gets so protective that you don't necessarily need a shield. Um, there, I mean, it's more complicated than that, but you do see like knights stop using shields later because their armor is so good that you just really can't get through it 
the shield's no longer beneficial, so you'd rather get a heavier weapon to smash through someone else's armor rather than have that extra board on your arm. But otherwise, yeah, shields are incredibly useful. I mean, I'd almost argue for making a plus three, to be honest. Like, I kind of like this idea I played around with that you might have an attack that would let you pull away someone's shield so they lose the bonus, but then pair that with making the shield a plus three. So it's a huge armor class boost, but it's a vulnerable armor class boost that the person can lose. Be is that too complicated? or? Well, I feel that this needs some playtesting. Yeah. All right. We've been going. Any other any other weapon ideas? You know, now that we're at the we're, we're kind of going on here. I still want to get some other stuff in here. Other than a plus 50 dragon killing sword. I'm still waiting, Dave. Yeah. Actually, that brings up one more idea I had. Heirloom. And Dave, I think you've done this. Heirloom weapons. So the idea behind an heirloom weapon is say it's like an like say say you want to introduce a a a a special sword. Like this is your your player's father's sword. Yeah. It's special to him, and you want that player to be able to use it, or her, and you want that player to be able to use it throughout their career. So what you do is you introduce that sword, but as the player goes up in tier, the sword's abilities increase. Yeah. So the sword is not overpowered at low levels, but it is it stays appropriate to the campaign power level as they go up in level. So that way, you can have this special sword that maintains that is always going to be the weapon they choose to use as they move up throughout the campaign. Like I, I this is an idea I've used before and I think it's really neat. The only problem is the player doesn't get the, the excitement of acquiring new weapons. That there, there's two problems there. Yes, that I like signature weapons. I think they're neat. Uh, I have used them and with success, but you know, especially now in five E where things are a lot more focused on balance and how am I going to give you a magic sword or a mystical sword with with this potential to start and dave made like hawk didn't get hawks using a shield he pulled off of death house at level one <laughs> so if you got a magic you got a legacy shield like how are we justifying that well that's a great question and i would i mean that kind of gets into a different question right as far as what can you start people out with First of all, I think it's reasonable to say, okay, this person has this particular backstory that's interesting, so they get maybe a plus one weapon. However, you don't need to start them out with a plus one weapon. Maybe it's just his ancestral sword until he hits the point where everyone starts getting plus one weapons. Yeah. And then it manifests its plus oneness. Yeah, and when it, people start getting plus two weapons, then it manifests as plus two-ness with some kind of ability. And then I don't think it's a problem. I just think it's the difference is, because especially as you go on, and I've, I've actually used this, so I've seen kind of how it plays out. It's they want to see what other cool stuff their sword does, and that's neat. But everyone else is getting random magic items throughout the campaign, which in some ways is cooler. So they kind of that player who gets the heirloom sword, you got to make the abilities cool enough that they're happy with it because they're no longer part of the magic weapon lotto. Everyone else gets to play. Yeah. I want to coin the phrase and trademark it for Three Wise DM plus oneness. <laughs> that's ours now. There we go. But you didn't like Magic Weapon Lotto? I don't <laughs> So, okay. Let's, uh, what about things, what about spell and, let's go spell ideas. Any spell ideas? Anything you do different about magic? Well, I'll tell you what I miss. That I feel concentration certainly cuts down on the shenanigans. Where as a wizard, <laughs> like, honest to God, like, I'd go into a battle and I have like 43 things going on. I mean, but... Like, well, you know, and, and and then you start taking my stuff down and my contingencies start going off. There, I would like to see certain spells that could be paired or the defensive spells where it's like, okay, well, you're polymorphed. That's it. You, nothing else. You're flying. 
that's it. Because any concentration spell, that's all you got, got going on. You know, I know a way to do this. Number one, I don't know if this works necessarily, but you could tweak your rules to make it work. What if your familiar could concentrate? Because you can already cast a top spell through a familiar. What if you decided what if you decided as a DM to say, okay, when you do that with your familiar, the familiar holds concentration on that spell and you can concentrate on a different spell. Hmm. You could also throw out magic items that do it. Maybe this magic item, or even this maybe you have an ability to draw spirits to you, where there's another thing that can concentrate for you that can hold your concentration. However, that thing can be subjected to other things that break its concentration. Like, for instance, uh, Bonnie in our one game, our Ojin in the one game, has an Ion Stone. Well, okay, what if you had an Ion Stone that could hold a concentration spell for you, but if someone snatches that out of the air because they can be attacked and grabbed, you lose concentration and lose the spell. That's interesting. Yeah, I think there's cool ways to do it. I mean, and familiars, as we've seen, can be very fragile. <laughs> as Dave's gotten more and more aggressive about killing my little leprechaun. It's uh, I I like the idea. It's it can quickly because as Tony said, he likes concentration because it cut down on the shenanigans. Because what happens is, I mean, just look up what con what spells are concentration, and you'll see exactly why they are. Yeah. Because <laughs> they're powerhouses. They're using things. They're things that are going to keep just blasting on someone round after round after round, or giving boosts round after round after round. So um. It's not necessarily off the table, but you do want to be careful about what you do add to it. In the same way, I've seen people uh, who have talked about wanting to make magic more dangerous, uh, make magic more uh, wild, as it were. Uh, and I think some people might be cool with that, but you have to be careful about, again, taking away the abilities that the person has that the other character classes they're not being affected by that. Only mm -hmm. the spellcaster, you know, um, but. That's true. I mean, because you're, if you're basically adding just a concentration thing, you're making magic uh, more. Oh, even more, because yeah. it's already super powerful. And there's no balance spell. to it. You're not adding anything to fighters that, that offsets that. <laughs> although, although maybe if you come back with like some of these things with I was these suggesting, weapon like, things, like, yeah, yeah, you know, who knows? Who knows? And right? there is something to be said for rolling out a bunch of these things. It's almost like an advanced fifth edition, right? It's mm -hmm. almost like here's some options you can lay on top of every class that can make all your classes more powerful, so you can play with more powerful things. Like the old splat books, right? Just all yeah, the yeah. additional builds and stuff. Yeah, yeah. In terms of like different new or new spells, I unfortunately have not played a wizard long enough in fifth to really start to research and be like, I want to make this spell. Because there's so many spells that they've already done between all the different, between the player's handbook, but then also the, you know, Xanathars and everything else that, but I like the idea of creating spells that don't exist anywhere in any of the books. You know, I like that idea. That is fun. Here's an idea that's not just creating new spells, but what if you had places of power? You know, there's certain places in your campaign world that can enhance magic. or let, So maybe a player can go there and kind of get a boost that lasts temporarily, but maybe it's like weeks mm. to enhance their magic. Or perhaps even you have a place of power where players can go and cast a unique spell, something that maybe gives them a boost for a certain period of time. There's a little bit of playing off the Skyrim idea of having your kind of your... Uh, the, the, the stones in Skyrim that you could kind of take the blessing from. But, you know, there's other ways to enhance magic that aren't just 
aren't just hey let's add a new spell and I, I got a couple i got a new spell here i can talk about too but like there's other things you can do with it like maybe there's a place that lets you do something unique spell wise or you know maybe um well this goes back to our uh, earlier question a week or two ago about rituals right, right? And that idea, not just rituals in terms of I can ritually cast Find Familiar, but I can ritually cast some crazy ass ritual to create some heretofore unknown uh, ability or boost or, 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 or. In one of the recent books, did they already, did Tasha's introduce rare spell components? Uh, I'd have to go back to take a look. They did. Um, Real real love-hate relationship with spell components. (laughs) <laughs> well, I'm sticking around. I just want to be honest. It might appear somewhere in Tasha's. I don't have it. I don't have it next to me. So excuse me if it doesn't. I, what if you had the idea where you could get rare spell components? So you could find a certain kind of spell, a certain, you know, maybe it's just a single thing. Maybe it's not an individual component, but maybe you have this particular powder that can be used to replace a spell component five times and add some additional effect to your spell. Maybe it extends the duration or something. You ever thought about, you know, what do you think about doing that? I mean, that that also could fly. That's a, a decent enough option. I'd like to see that s- certain items are very well balanced with charges and some are like, mm, you know, I, I, a, a little questionable about them. What do you I mean? Like, like, like you, there's things that use charges you wish didn't? Uh, not as bad as in 5e. In 4e, it was ridiculous. It's like you use something one time, like, well, this thing's shot. Like, forget about it. I don't understand... I, I, or I kind of do understand, like, some of the some of the wands are like, well, you lose the last charge, it could blow up. Like, <laughs> I kind of like the flavor. I, 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 like like the flavor. Mechanic, I like that mechanic myself. It just means you got to be careful not to use, not to lose your last charge. You got to track your mechanics. Of course, I guess on the flip side, is any DM tracking the charges on the players' items they use? No, no. I mean, I'm I'm trusting my players to do that. I will say, I mean, beam. My cleric has the staff of healing. I use it yeah. often, but I am this past battle that we just had. I was very cognizant of what I had spell wise in the tank, and then what I had left with the staff of healing. Because I was like, I mean, if I need to use this thing, I will, but I don't really want it to explode. And now we don't have it, you know, because it's coming handy. So well, yeah, that's definitely a, a tension builder, you know. But you actually, do have to be tracking it. <laughs> and I guess so. if you're in roll twenty, you can also always look at your character, at your player's sheets, because like I will see, yeah, I always, I always track my charges for Phineas with the staff he has, mm. and see, so, you know, if, if you know, whenever we rest, I you know make sure it goes up, and I don't use it a ton, but you know, so there's been a couple times where I was like down to like one charge on it. I've never taken it down all the way. Woo. Yeah, careful. Being careful. Don't want to lose the good stuff. But I guess that's what Tony's talking about, right? Like, this is a situation where it's like almost like that's a pain in the ass thing, right, Tony? Well, it, it can be. Like, on the flip side, I have a Ring of Regeneration in Dave's Ravenloft game. Can't say I'm – I hate to admit this. I'm not super paying attention to that because <laughs> it's it, it's not – it's really like, okay – cool like my my step toe healed you know what I mean while I'm just blowing like hit dice you know <laughs> what's that one do is that like you get like some number of hit points back every turn or something mm, well in in combat it really doesn't do a whole okay. lot it, it heals you on the side kind of yeah no uh gain d6 hit points every 10 minutes okay so it's like a walking around kind of healing kind of thing yeah, you're kind of walking that guy off, but if like you're you're in a battle, like the original Ring of Regeneration, you had the Rings of Regeneration, the Ring of Rapid Regeneration, 
and they were pretty cool and that the infamous ring of vampire generation that would backfire if you attacked it on dead <laughs> that's always great at parties well, and the, the way the Ring of Vampire Regeneration worked was when you dealt damage, you got that back that many hit points. But if you hit something that was undead, they drained hit points from you instead, right? Or you just said it was poison and you lost more hit points. It, it backfired. All right. What about monsters? Any monster ideas? Well, there's one that I want to play with that is not my own creation, but it would turn into my own creation because they just kind of give you a little background. But it's from uh, the Van Richten's guide. It's the Bagman. And he's kind of like this creepy, like, he, it comes through a bag of holding. It's this entity that travels through the extra-dimensional spaces and can enter and exit any bag of holding anywhere. And it's like this creepy-ass, like, the ring-looking, like, skeletal <laughs> figure contortionist that pulls out. And for me, I'm very freaked out by that type of movement in movies. Right, the spastic movement. I don't yeah, like that. Yeah. Uh, it's wrong. Um, so, <laughs> That's why they do it. Yeah, exactly. So the Bagman is cool, man. Uh, so I, I, I kind of would like to play with that a little bit. This idea. Also, it plays to the Candyman idea. Like if you whisper something about the Bagman into a bag of holding, you might get an answer or call its attention. It's just wow, a, a Candyman reference. That's all. Yeah, it's a very good, just a cool blurb they have in the book where they don't give you stats. I mean, unfortunately, but it lets you go, huh? How? What would that look like in my world? So, and that I I'm thinking of it because there's a friend of ours that's wanting to run a game where we're all in essence like monsters, and I was thinking I would try to be it's kind of like a the Bagman, but kind of like Slenderman too, like some weird. So you're playing an evil campaign, like we're all monsters. Yeah, exactly. Right. That could be really cool. We've talked about evil campaigns have their have their risk, but if everyone's playing a monster, that's neat. Right. Right. Yeah. So so that's where I kind of came up with the whole Bagman thing, but it's just a cool. I was like, man, that would have been in Ravenloft. It's it's not not at this point. <laughs> not the Scat Man. We're near the end game now, so like, what's the point? But you know. <laughs> By you telling any monster ideas? I don't. I feel like the dragon should have different, a little wider age categories than they actually do. Yeah, that does kind of. Even though you can kind of have one at any threat level, I mean, there's sometimes I found myself wishing I could kind of just up this dragon. It's adult or it's as old as a pyramid. I mean, like there you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's pretty much it. Like there's no difference between a hundred years old and five thousand. But doesn't no. it go? It, it goes what adult? Let's go. Adult, old, and great and great worm, or just straight to great worm? No, just old to uh, adult to ancient. Correct. To ancient? Yeah. Yeah. I I will use the term great worm until I until I die. <laughs> uh, I think they do. The you. Wormling, young, adult, and ancient are the categories they. Maybe do. they will introduce the great worms as a different style of dragon. That would be pretty cool. Oh, there you go. There's an idea like, to pitch. Well, yeah, there's an idea. Okay, there's another one. It's a free one. Because the ancient ones are extremely formidable. That's not what I'm saying. But, like, in your dragon battle you, you ran out earlier, like, I think that would have been better suited to, like, maybe not the ancient, like, the CR-23 go-F-yourself dragon, but maybe, you know, an old one. Yeah, well, dude, yeah. I'm just, I'm just going to tell you, you throw, I mean, depending on how you do it, but even the ancient dragons, when you really look at the stat block, if you throw a certain party at it, dude, of like level 15, they're going to ace that dude. They're going to ace him, you know? 
They're going to ace them. I oh, mean, please. We almost died to freaking plants last week. We would yeah, battle well, what did we do against an old... What did we do against an adult black dragon? We this how is his ass in two rounds. This has come up twice. We need to just explain to the to their listeners what the hell we're talking about. So we talked about the bad day for the black dragon. It's an article on the website about how the party, how the Woodstock Wanderers took out a black dragon depressingly quickly. The black dragon had a garden of corpse flowers in its entryway that they were supposed to go to before they ever got to it. But he, through good play, Dave was able to bait him out by basically doing a ritual on his front doorstep, and they were able to fight the dragon outside and slaughtered it. However, when they went into that corpse flower battle, I put them up against six corpse flowers, which, if I'm being entirely honest, might have only been four corpse flowers if the black dragon was still around. And the party did almost die. I, I, I did get one of the players down. Like, I actually killed one of the party members, and then since they're corpse flowers, if you haven't read Corpse Flower, uh, it's a monster that basically, it's a plant monster that is mobile, agile, hostile, has corpses on it, which can either reanimate as zombies or eat to heal itself with 2d10 per turn. And if one of the players dies, which is really fun, it will pick <laughs> them up and add them to his corpse collection. So a player went down to zero hit points. The corpse flower immediately hit it twice with two natural 20s to take it from unconscious to take him from unconscious to dead and then the next corpse flower who was up went over there picked him up and impaled him on the inside and now people now for the party it got real yeah yeah very much so <laughs> fear of the flowers because we were all we were already hurting as it was so and since now that corpse flower still had a few corpses on it but i basically added a mechanic because that corpse flower's turn came around again and it did have to heal so is it going to eat the party member to heal or another corpse i added a roll had that roll come up as a one, it would have eaten the PC. Fortunately, it didn't. It ate someone else. But I think that was a that was certainly a uh, there was some clenching going on when I was rolling to see who was going to get swallowed by the corpse flower. I think the party definitely was paying attention at that point. Definitely a good monster, though. Definitely a good monster. It was fun, especially in uh, in droves as they were. The drove. I mean, you. It was a party. It was a level twelve party of six. A, yeah, six that night. We were down one player. Against six CR8 monsters. No, I'm not saying, but I'm saying against a good uh, drove. I mean, you know, that obviously <laughs> hyperbolic, but no, but against several, they were a great monster for that. They really, uh, they created a really good encounter. So and there's another, uh, you guys have heard, us use, heard me use the term before, brush back pitch. Every now and then you do have to, you do have to bring a tougher combat to the party just so they don't get too cocky. <laughs> <laughs> I would um, like to see more variety of vampires, honestly. Yeah, there's like three in there. You can kind of apply any kind of template to them, but I know what you mean. It's like, because like that elder vampire really doesn't feel old enough. No, like, no, it's not. It's he's totally, like in his forties. Yeah. The um. So if you go, I'll 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 plug him because he does a good job. Sly Flourish. He does a whole thing on yeah. running Curse of Strahd, and he actually broke out like eight different styles of vampire that he created uh, just to give some flavor to his world. And we talked about the Strahd thing, this idea of this centuries old vampire. And he's like, not that tough just by himself, you know? Um, so I have read that there's a level 20 or CR 20 version of him that has a Vorpal sword. There is a, somebody built that. A, no, no, no. Somebody built a CR 27 version of Strahd. Which is 
fucking ludicrous. I looked you know, at you've it. You've been in Barovia a long time if you need to fight a CR-27. I looked at it, and I was like, <laughs> what are you doing, dude? Why did you try? Like, I get it. You want your party to be like, you know, this is the big one. But, like, holy shit, dude. You literally put them up against a god. He went. He went. He went Super Saiyan, and they became an ascended Super Saiyan vampire. Yeah. I took the CR twenty seven and the CR fifteen, and I I played around. <laughs> Does he have a what flying a, guillotine? I mean, like, what are we dealing with? Ooh, there's an idea. Add the flying guillotine to the game. How would that work? He's a fortieth level spellcaster, so I. <laughs> He doesn't need it. He's got it. Uh, I do have one other monster idea, and it kind of plays into talking about the Celtic campaign, which is nature spirits. Now, these are sort of like elementals, but they have more personality. I mean, the problem with elementals is they're mindless elementals. But there's this idea across cultures that, like, you know, the river has a spirit. The mountain mm -hmm. has a spirit. The forest has a spirit. They're represented by certain D&D monsters, but those monsters tend to be more like 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 a like a dryad is more of a protector of the trees. It's not really the spirit of the tree of, of the forest. So I like the idea of having lands that have attributes of, the, of of spirits. They have spirits that live in them that are actually personifications of the land. The land they are the soul of the land. Yeah, like the what kami. Oh, the what? Uh, the kami from the Shinto yes. religion. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. Perfect. And the idea would be that these spirits can influence events in incorporeal ways or take the form of an avatar with stats. So, you know, basically you could have different levels of this. So they might have lair actions or the ability to influence events and characters and players in their realm. But they wouldn't necessarily be lair actions that are focused on combat like you have with you know other monsters. Although they could, there could be some that are. But they would be more a matter of how does the spirit consciously interact with the things going on inside of it or around it or to it. Mm. And then you could also have the spirit potentially take the form of an avatar that would have actual monster stats. And if that spirit gets killed, it reforms in a period of time angrier and the land gets more hostile to people around it. And then if you develop the land, you can kill the spirit that way. If like there's too much industrial development around it, you can kill the spirit of it or badly suppress it. And then you have the aspect of having parties can undertake quests to restore a surviving evil spirit to goodness or to birth a new spirit if the land has been restored. Just this kind of idea that kind of gets deeper into kind of players interacting with the world as a magical place, you know? Yeah, pretty cool. Solid. So, yeah, this is my campaign setting taking shape there, I think. Yeah, <laughs> it sounds it. <laughs> There's a lot of development work that needs to be done here. A lot of spirits need to be fleshed out. I thought it'd be cool. All right, guys, we have been going on for a while. Why don't we get to some final thoughts? And do you have any more big idea takeaways before we sign off? Uh, I, I am interested in rolling around the mechanic of uh, different healing. I'm not going to – I wouldn't <clears throat> say let's really um, make it arduous, but I feel like perhaps that if you're in a situation – like if you're running a first campaign for a bunch of characters – and we threw out a lot of different campaign ideas about some, like adding more meat to the game. And some more veteran players really do dig that, and I get it. But it's going to slow some things down, and it depends upon if your audience is going to pick all these things up. Because honestly, there's a lot happening in the game, and if you're casual players and you're playing a game like once a month, you're forgetting stuff. I don't care. Like how many times Thorne said, you need to go to this Black Dragon's lair. You're looking for something specific. And then there was like crickets in that room. It was like you could hear a pin drop. Dave's like, I wrote it down. And like everyone else is like, what? We're, we're, we're here for pie. I mean, 
So that that is something to take in consideration. I like the idea of cold shots. It, it can be problematic. Like, I do appreciate the flavor it provides. Uh, that would really need to be properly refined. Because mm-hmm. anybody could say, like, I'm going for a specific hit. The way I recommend handling that is if someone says, I'm going to try to shoot the dragon in the eye, and I they roll natural 20, I would do something at that point. Then I'd add a little bit of a story aspect to it. Perhaps there is some penalties, vision, and what have you. And finally, yeah, dragons, vampires, creatures that need that grow power from age. I want to kind of expand on them. You're you're uh, in between your adult and your ancient dragon. Like really, patriarch vampires in the original Van Richten's guide were positively horrifying. They were godlike. Some of those guys might have as well have been CR twenty vampires, much more powerful than Strahd in any write up that I saw. They had preposterous powers. They could charm you with their thoughts. They had completely ditched all their vampire vulnerabilities. They they were truly like undead demigods on Earth. Yeah. Not for every party. Don't throw them out there. This is how it's like having the vampires from like Queen of the Damned. Right. (laughs) But but that's a cool way to do vampires, though, where they keep having effectively age categories. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in a world like that, your vampires are like dragons, and that they keep getting more and more powerful as they get older. I think it's cool. I think it's a great idea. Uh, but I got to actually tell you something else I got to ask you about. Did you really lead your final thoughts on our ideas episode by telling players, they, they're telling our listeners that they shouldn't have, add new ideas because it slows the game down? Is that really the bombshell you're <laughs> dropping here? Um, you contrarian hat on. Well, I have to say that it depends. Like, we're talking new concepts, like expanding character ideas or adding new swords. I think that's neat. Then you could just introduce it and say, here's a long sword, here's an arming sword, here's a bastard sword, here's a, a katana. I mean, there's different ways you can introduce that, and here's the stats. It's not complicating things. If we're getting into durability of my armor, my weapons, uh, my shield broke, things like that, uh, then that gets a little tricky. I would just caution that. I will say, I as I've looked at ways to kind of expand weapons and some of those ideas I've had here, I definitely, I, I do think you should avoid giving them another set of hit points to track. Like, you know, like shield hits or something. Yes, yeah, like I would love to put it in because it adds some verisimilitude. It could be cool, but then it's like, okay, now where do they get another shield? How are they tracking the shield? It's just one more fiddly bit. You want to avoid adding too many <clears throat> things people have to track. Because like you said, right. how many how many of us are really tracking encumbrance correctly or, or, or gold pieces even correctly? You know, honestly, I don't want to like to come up also hating on charges because charges are not a bad idea. But I could swear I've seen people fire Wanda fireballs in some games like 15 times. It's like John Wayne's pistol. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, I'm not really super paying attention, but I could swear it was like the 14th discharge of that weapon. All right, so Dave, what about you? Final thoughts and any last big bombshells you got? Because I got All it. Right. I no, I'm got- I don't think it's a bombshell, but this is what I'm going to leave you with, because Tony led this off with the possibility of running Tomb of Annihilation, which, again, I am super behind, and what I will be bringing to that game is my newest character, which I think his name will be Roosevelt, because he's going to be a gif in period piece clothing. He's going to be a gunslinger, but he'll be a ranger. So I'm going to finally do my ranger build. So he's going to be a ranger gunslinger archaeologist named Roosevelt, who's a gif running through the jungles of Chult on a quest to find whatever he needs to find to bring back to the museum. That's my plan. 
Uh, that's probably the next character that I'm gonna. I'm really excited about. That's a so cool. Big. That's a cool character. I like that. Well, yes. <laughs> I really well, want to play. Props him. to you. I mean, when you guys are gonna have choices. little the little glasses on his snout. Bully. <laughs> yeah. Bully. I love competition. <laughs> oh yeah, and I can use all the old slang. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Would not fit in the Celtic campaign. So, yeah. It's no, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. That's all. It's very campaign specific. <laughs> Any other final thoughts? Uh, No, no. I think we covered most of the stuff. We didn't get to my uh, West Marches campaign idea, but I've talked about it before, but with the Golden Lore Collection Company. But mm. I almost got it off the ground. I had like one game of it and then it kind of didn't continue. But one day we'll do a West Marches thing. So, for me, final thoughts. You know, Tony's caution here is warranted. There's a lot of really cool ideas. Some of what we talked about, you can just do as a DM. You're just basically, it's just different monsters and different world building mechanics that you can add in, and they're easy to add in, and it doesn't really make it any more complex for the players. A couple of them, some of these weapon ideas, the other guys are right. You got to have players who want to engage with them. You got to have players who are going to get into that. And if you do, I think they could be really cool. And your own ideas, you do that same kind of betting on them. Think about, do I have players I can roll this out with? And if you can, I would say you should do it because as we've said in previous episodes, nothing's quite as cool as the things you add that break the rules. Like anything you can add that players like that isn't in a book is going to be so much cooler to them than what is in the books. So just keep that in mind. And just to pay off on what I think is my last bombshell here. So we know that you have... If you, the player does something really cool, if the player has a really great plan, you can give them advantage. But oftentimes, you've already given players a DM, a DM or you can give them inspiration, essentially, or maybe advantage. But oftentimes, advantage might already be in play. And I think there's something to be said for having a different scale for rewarding the coolness or the tactical brilliance of an idea. So how about this? Instead of just the DM throwing around advantage, which, frankly, players can get in other ways, and I'd rather see them find other ways to get it, you can throw out a bonus die for impressive play. Now, it's going to be used on that roll. It's not something they can save, but it gives you a chance to also have a sliding scale. Did you like it enough that it's a D6, a D8, or is it a D4? And you basically can just give the player that die to add to this roll they're going to make to reward the fact that you really like the way they're going about it, or you think it's a really good idea, or you think, they have a, or you think that they've come up with a good plan and you want to reward it. And you can make this scale anywhere from D4 to D20, or if you're really crazy, D100 careful you could also add this to damage not just to things that are impacted by advantage so you can apply this bonus die maybe they did something really cool and scored the hit and you can give them bonus a bonus damage die for it so this is an interesting idea i'm kind of thinking about playing around with that as a dm throw out there okay hey that's really great give yourself a d6 bonus die damage roll if you hit with this something like that and it lets you reward players for good play or the kind of play you want to reward without getting too crazy and without giving them something they can store away for later which is sort of the problem with dm inspiration it's a great reward, and it's nice they can share it around, but they've only got one slot for it. And in fact, a lot of our DMs have, have actually not limited to that. A lot of our DMs actually say that players can stack inspirations and have two or three in the bank. And this just gives you another another level to pull, another lever to pull, something else can be cool. And then on the flip side, you be careful with this, but you could also throw out there negative dice for unimpressive play. So they did deduct these from their rolls if you think what the player's doing is stupid. So there's my idea. <laughs> Boy, that's some dangerous stuff there, folks. Uh-huh. Uh, uh-huh. There you go. There, there, ways to make friends and influence people in your D&D campaign. Good luck with it. It's a potential thing you could possibly do. All right. And on that bombshell, I think it's time for us to wrap up. We've certainly gone on for a long time this episode. Guys, thank you very much. Some great ideas here. 
some great Absolutely. new games we can look forward to. Absolutely. Well, hopefully. And what did you listening at home think about this? What do you think? Are these good ideas? Are these bad ideas? Do you have your own ideas? We would love to hear it. So if you're listening and you want to let us know what you think or you want to hear us talk about problems you may have in your game, send us feedback at threewisedms at gmail.com. Or you can reach out to us on the What's Your Problem field on our website. Our website is threewisedms.com. Or you can talk to us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We're active in all those places. If you like what you heard, please take a minute to give us a five-star review or five-star rating on your podcast platform of choice. And if you really liked it, leave us a good review. We would love to hear it. We'd love to see those things. Share it with your friends. All that stuff really helps us grow. So that's a great way you can help the show. And thank you very much, as always, for listening. That's it for this week. We'll see you next time on Three Wise DMs. Thank you.